Good morning. Boy, it is great to preach finally in front of you, physically present. What a blessing and what an honor. My name is David. As Pastor Matt said, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to welcome you this morning. Those online, welcome as well. It is great to worship with you, and I have a lifelong one of my dear friends, David, checking in and watching from North Carolina. Good morning to you, sir. We are in the book of Acts in a series called The Church in Motion. Are you guys enjoying this series? Yeah, I am too. I love the book of Acts. And to quote one of my best friends, Jory, the book of Acts is my favorite movie. I love this book. Last week, Pastor Matt brought us the word from Acts chapter 16, which is one of the most well-known stories in probably all of the New Testament. And I'm going to be repetitive, but for the sake of it, I'm going to go for it anyway. Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, in stocks, in chains. There's this divine earthquake at midnight as they are praising and singing and worshiping the Lord. The prison walls come down. The chains fall off. They are free men, should they choose to accept it. If they accept their freedom and escape, the jailer pays for that with his life. They don't move. So in essence, they pay for the jailer's life with their own. Right? Is that not dripping with the gospel and dripping with Christ? The jailer gets saved. He gives his life to Christ, his whole household. An amazing story. The Roman authorities that detained Paul and Silas freak out when they find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. Very, very bad stuff to detain a Roman citizen the way that they did. And so they free them the next morning and kindly ask them to move along. And that brings us to Acts chapter 17. But before we go on, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, these need to be your words and not mine. This needs to be your sermon and not mine. Father, this needs to be carried along by your Spirit. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you anoint these words? I believe that these are, are your words for your people. Bless it to our minds, bless it to our hearts. Take the information and use it for transformation. That's what we need more than anything. Personally, corporately, societally. Father, we love you, we trust you. Give me boldness to preach this message wrapped in nothing but humility and compassion. May your gospel go forth to the expansion of your kingdom by the power of your spirit, to the glory and honor of your son. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, it is Paul's second missionary journey. And as you can see from the map, it's tough to pick up because there's a lot going on there. This guy's covering a lot of ground in the name of Jesus, 3,000 miles to be exact. Acts 17 reports Paul's activities really in three locations in this order as he travels from north to, to south, Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. And you can see the locations on the map. I did my best to highlight them for you. Athens is way down in the bottom of Greece. And after they're escorted out of Philippi, they travel south to Thessalonica. There, Paul does what Paul does. 
He preaches Christ crucified to the Jews. First to the Jews, then to the Greeks. Some believe, but others cause a huge uproar. They attack the house where Paul is staying, the house of a a gentleman by the name of Jason. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, the Jews drag Jason out of the house. They drag him in front of the city authorities and they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, first off, praise God for Jason and his willingness to take the brothers in and keep them safe. But secondly, how amazing would it be for us to be known as the people who are turning the world upside down for the cause of Christ? And because of this tizzy, the brothers immediately send Paul and Silas away by night south to Berea. When they get there, they make a beeline for the synagogue, first to the Jews, then to the Greek. Scripture says that these Jews were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, and they double-checked what Paul and Silas were saying against the Scriptures to make sure that everything was squared away. Now, Trinity... Quick side note, do not abandon this practice. Are pastors the spiritual authority within a church? Sure. Are we the cosmic authority? Absolutely not. I am subject to God's word every bit, if not more, as you are. And if I ever get up here and preach something that contradicts God's word, it is God's words that is to be believed, not mine. Deal? This is one of the reasons we should be viciously passionate about biblical literacy. Very passionate about biblical literacy. Oh, I want to so camp out here all day. We've got to get to Athens. All right. When the Jews up in Thessalonica hear that Paul and Silas are doing work down in Berea, they show up there and they cause a huge uproar. They start trouble all over again. And I love this. Let me read this to you. I love this. It says in verse 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 17, it says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, But Silas and Timothy remained. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they get thrown out of town after town after town, thrown in prison, thrown out of town, thrown out of town, thrown out of town. And can't you just picture Silas walking up to Paul and be like, man, you are just killing it right now. Listen, Timothy and I got this thing. Why don't you go ahead to Athens and we'll meet you there? And so here we are. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Paul, on the greatest stage he's ever been on, Athens. A massive cultural and intellectual hub. Some of the greatest minds there. Some of the highest thinkers there. The smartest of the smart. The most intellectually influential people probably on the planet at that point in time. Does Paul back down? Nope. Does the gospel triumph? Yep. Let's take a look. Verses 16 through 34. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to come back up to the top, and I want to show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes three things. It changes what we see, it changes what we feel, and it changes what we do. Changes what we see, 
changes what we feel and it changes what we do. Paul in Athens, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I I noticed an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Athens, more specifically this marketplace that Paul goes to, is Grand Central Station for the exchange of thoughts and ideas and debate and commerce. This place is called the Agora, and we really don't have a suitable synonym for it in English. It's a large open area for business and heralds to pronounce the news and conversation and debate and politics. And this area was surrounded by judicial buildings, temples, dance halls, art studios, theaters, archives, state offices, law courts, the Acropolis, the ancient citadel, the sculptures, the spectacles. This is society's ground zero for all activity. 
Have you ever been to a place like this? Perhaps Times Square in New York City? Maybe the history and architecture of Rome or Paris? Maybe the giant monuments we have in Washington, D.C. And you look at these marvelous uh, buildings and the architecture and the sights and the activity and the busyness and the hustle and bustle and the energy, and you stand there and you're just in awe of it. I certainly have. Paul hasn't. He wasn't in Athens to see sights. He was in Athens to save souls. He's not there on vacation. Make no mistake, Paul is there on mission. And he wasn't in awe of what he saw because what he saw was changed by the gospel. And who was better at this than Jesus Christ himself, right? The disciples see a man born blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus sees a chance to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and glorify God. The disciples see a thirsty enemy. Jesus sees a woman at a well who needs to drink from the living water. Simon the Pharisee sees a woman of the night. Jesus sees an opportunity to demonstrate mercy and grace on a level Simon could never understand. We read about two sisters in shambles and Lazarus dead. Jesus sees an opportunity to raise the level of everybody's faith by displaying the power of God over death itself. Jesus was the master at seeing what we couldn't. It was like he was a walking spiritual MRI. And Paul, led by the Spirit of God, is doing the same thing in Athens. See, the word Luke uses here doesn't mean to notice or to take a look, to take a peek. The word is thereo, which means to see with understanding, to see deeper. Yes, he physically saw the art and the sculptures and the commerce and the busyness and the hustle and bustle, but it's what he spiritually saw. He saw that behind each one of these was an idol. He saw that they were making these things ultimate, that these things were taking the place of God. If we see wrong, we'll diagnose the problem wrong. And if we diagnose the problem wrong, we will definitely get the prescription wrong. The solution to money being idol is, an idol is not to hate money. It's to love Jesus. And so one of the questions that Scripture is begging of us today is, what determines how you see the world? Is it Fox News? Is it CNN? Is it your political affiliation? Is it your pride? Is it your pursuit of pleasure? Past shame and guilt? Where you grew up? Your financial situation? Or the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ? And let me put a sharper edge on the question. What determines how you view yourself? Politics? Pride? Insecurity? family, where you grew up, your financial situation? Is your present self the sum of your past poor decisions? When Paul wrote a letter back to the church in Philippi where the jailer was saved, he wrote these words. He says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. The word in the Greek is much stronger than rubbish, but for piety, I'll leave that there. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or that I am already perfect. And here it comes. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Paul knew who he was precisely because he knew whose he was. The gospel changed how he saw himself, and it changed how he saw the world around him. What about us? As a people redeemed, bought for by a price, do we see ourselves, our neighborhoods, our nation, through the redemptive lens of the gospel? And the gospel didn't just change what Paul saw, it also changed what Paul felt. Look at verse 16, and we're going to key in on one word. Luke writes that when Paul saw that the city was full of idols, his spirit was provoked. He felt what he felt because he saw what he saw. If you don't see the idols, you won't feel provoked. Provoked, paraxuno in the Greek. This doesn't mean what may have jumped into your mind when I said provoked. The root word of this means to have a seizure. And that tells us the depth of the feeling that Paul had when he sees that the city are full of idols. But the core of the feeling is not anger. In the third century, 72 Hebrew scholars got together and translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. In every place where they read that God's anger was provoked, this is the word that they used. And the reason that they used it is because when God is provoked, it is because he is a jealous God, but not jealousy the way you, you and I define it, not a selfishness. The jealousy of God that leads to the provocation of God is part of the purity of God's love. If I see my daughter ruining her life with poor decisions, I can assure you I will not have a sentimental reaction to it. My spirit will be provoked. My love for her burns white hot. In fact, if it didn't, you would be right in asking me if I love her as my daughter. You see the complexity here? Embedded into pure love, embedded into the love of God is indignation when he sees his creation worshiping anything other than him because he knows that he is what's best for his creation. And so here is Paul. He sees through the gospel lens and he feels through the gospel filter. His love for the lost burning, white hot, because he knows how the story of idolatry ends. And he didn't pity them. He didn't get all sentimental. He definitely didn't get prideful. He had a godly mix of the jealous anger and compassion, which is absolutely what we need today. If the gospel just changes what we see, 
but not what we feel, we will be left with unrighteous anger or indifference. And both are the exact opposite of love. If the gospel changes only what we see, but not what we feel, we will be left with unrighteous anger or indifference. We'll either see the idolatry around us and we'll hammer people over the head with the law. Do better. Be better. Or we'll see it and ignore it, saying they'll get what they deserve. And this so convicted me this week because every time I hear about things that are going on in Portland, for example, I can promise you I have not seen that with the eyes of Jesus. And I can promise you that my reaction to that has been anything but spiritual. When I see with the flesh, I won't even put this on you, when I see with my flesh, it's not my spirit that's provoked, it's my ego. And I'm more interested in winning arguments than winning souls. The gospel changes what we see when we look at the world around us, and it changes what we feel, and because it changes what we feel, it changes what we do. Paul cries out in the middle of all the action, men of Athens, turn or burn. Nope. Paul reasons with the Jews in the marketplace every day in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, and he does such a good job of it that he gets invited, although insulted in the process. Babbler is most certainly an insult. He gets invited to the biggest stage in the world, the Areopagus, a large rock outcropping where these matters were debated by the best and brightest. The real deal, the big leagues. Right? Verse 21 tells us that this was the thought market. The Athenians and all the foreigners, they would do nothing else but talk all day about this stuff. And what does Paul do? He goes to the spot named after Ares, the god of war, and he preaches the god of peace. Verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Pop quiz, Trinity, tell me the world's most popular sport. Money, attendance, participation, soccer. Religion, uniforms, different teams, competition, played by billions. Some are amateurs, other are professionals. Lots of spectators, lots of effort, lots of dedication. The pride of accomplishment. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't change anyone. And you really don't get anywhere. See, worship without knowledge will lead to rules without relationship. And rules without relationship is religion. But I don't think Paul is tossing around an insult here. He's saying, I see that you're very religious. I see you're devout. That's a truth about culture. That's a truth about the human heart. We'll we'll worship something. You can be sure of that. And he says, I see the objects of your worship. The question is not, if we were made to worship. The question is who we were made to worship. 
Paul's using what they already know to steer them in the right direction. Now, we're told that the Epicureans and the Stoics are there as well. The Epicureans believe in God, but they believe that there are tons of gods and the gods could care less. There's no judgment, there's nothing, nothing after death, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Pursue pleasure at all costs. The Stoics, on the other hand, they believe that God was everywhere and in everything. The world was determined by fate and people had to resign themselves to living a life of suffering, of pain, of hardship. And Paul is about to take their coexist bumper sticker and put it in the shredder. He says, this God whom you worship in ignorance, let me introduce you to him. Verse 24, this God that you don't know, he created everything and he is Lord over everything. He is not divorced from the world, nor is the world subject to fate. He is alive and active and involved and every single thing finds its being in him. And he is completely independent. He needs nothing. Nor does he live in temples, nor is he served by human hands. Everything needs him. He needs nothing. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. And we talked about this in Acts chapter 8. Nation's not the translation. It's ethnics. Different ethnicities. And they are a beautiful reflection of the diversity, of the unity of the diversity in the Trinity. But so much for different races. There's one, the human race. And he is a personal God determining when and where every single person would live so that they can seek God and find Him, for He is not far from anyone. And Paul says, look, even your own thinkers realize this, and he quotes two of them, in Him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, since we're God's offspring, how can we think that God is so silver or gold or stone or an image formed by man? Are you? Well, neither is he. And in verse 30, Paul adds to his theology human responsibility. And this is the call that without it, the full counsel has not been preached. He's correctly identified the issue, which causes his spirit to well up with provocation. And now he delivers the correct prescription. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now. But now. But now. Some of you are here today and listening today to hear, but now. God made everything. He rules over everything. The very breath you breathe, you do so because God said you could. He needs nothing. He overlooked your sins. He overlooked your rebellion. And in love, he not only determined when you would live and where you would live, but he orchestrated every single event in history that you would end up here today to hear these exact words. But now he commands people everywhere to repent, to turn away from their idols and turn to him. Because the day is coming when he will judge the world in total righteousness. Do not go into that day of judgment with your own resume. 
I'm a good person, will not cut it. No, you're not. Not as good as God and not even as good as you think you are, and I will prove it to you in love. If God assigned to you from birth an angel, a fat little naked baby with wings, and that angel followed you around every day of your life, and every single time you judge someone, someone else's bad behavior, the angel wrote it down in a book. Someone lies and you say it's bad, writes it down in a book. Gossip, bad. Cheating, bad. Lust, bad. Stealing, bad. Unforgiveness, bad. Pride, bad. When you die, if God was to give you the fairest judgment he could, he would not judge you by his standards, he would judge you by your own standards, and you would fail. And so would I. And the day is coming when God will judge this world in total righteousness. And Revelation 6 tells us this. We must know this, that the day will come when all who have rejected Christ will call for mountains to crush their brains lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. But now I bring you good news of great joy that the righteousness the purity, the standard of excellence and obedience and the perfection that God will one day judge this world by is available to you. The gates of heaven are open right now for the one man that God appointed is Jesus Christ. And one day, Jesus, he saw and he looked down from heaven and saw the idols in your life and his love for you burned white hot and he stepped out of heaven and he was born in the likeness of human flesh. And he lived the perfect life that you couldn't and that I couldn't. And he died in our place on the cross, taking the full brunt of the wrath that you and I deserve. And if you believe that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid for your sins and you confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you will be saved. How do I know that? Verse 31. Because God proved it to the world by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. The stone was rolled away and the tomb that Jesus was laid in was empty on Easter Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, and every single day since then. Do you think that you're too far gone to come back to Jesus? He has rolled away bigger stones. No, no, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. He has rolled away bigger stones. You think you can outsin God's forgiveness, his love, his mercy, his grace? Hear this today. He has rolled away bigger stones. The only God that could ever save was not found on a wooden shelf but on a wooden cross. Put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and let the good news change who you are by changing whose you are. Let the gospel change your eternal destiny and may it change what we see, what we feel, and what we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this scripture. I thank you for the, the leading of the Holy Spirit that you had in Paul's life. But Father, that same spirit that's in him is in us. And Father, the, this world does not need a comfortable brand of Christianity. It needs us to 
be changed from the inside out to see differently, to see as Jesus did, to see underneath, to see deeper. Father, we can't feel as we do in our flesh. We need to feel as Jesus did with compassion and love and mercy and grace. Would our spirit be provoked to preach and proclaim the gospel in our cities, in our homes that are full of idols? Father, your word has gone forth. It's in your hands now. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you convict and that you convert. Not for our kingdom. Certainly not for my sake. Father, for your kingdom and for the sake of Jesus. For he alone is worthy.